This morning we are going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. And the title of our sermon today is Astonishing Jesus. Well, the town that I grew up in is a town called Edmond, Oklahoma, and it's a suburb of Oklahoma City, if you're unfamiliar where that is. Um, And while it's known for many things, one of the things that put it on the map, so to speak, is Shannon Miller. Um, For those of you who may not know her, um, she was a very famous gymnast in the 90s, and this is what Wikipedia says about her. Uh, She was the 1993 and 1994 world all-around champion, the 1996 Olympic balance beam champion, the 1995 Pan American Games all-around champion, and a member of the gold medal winning Magnificent Seven team at the 1996 Olympics. Uh, She is from my hometown and went to my high school. Go Huskies. Um, Well, after winning her gold medals, uh, the town renamed streets after her, and most significantly, uh, put this statue in the middle of town in a newly named Shannon Miller Park. Uh, It was a popular thing to go do that pose in front of the statue and take your picture there. Um, She was a hometown hero. So, what about Jesus? He cast out demons, healed the sick, cleansed a leper, healed a paralyzed guy, and forgave sins, healed a man with a withered hand, preached authoritatively, gathered great crowds, stilled a storm, cast out a legion of demons, healed a woman with a 12-year bleeding issue, and brought back a little girl from the dead. Just some small things so far in Jesus' ministry. So, how will Jesus' hometown respond when he returns? Will they rename streets after him? Jesus of Nazareth Boulevard, maybe? Will they build a statue and a park in his honor? Well, they won't do either of those things, but what they do the text tells us, astonishes Jesus. So let's dive into the text and see what happens when Jesus returns home to Nazareth. This is the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. 
And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. Our two main points for today in this sermon are these. Number one, hometown rejection in verses one through six. And then point two, depending on God for mission, verses 7 through 13. So point one, hometown rejection. Uh, I want us to remember back to Mark chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, Maybe you remember it. Jesus is in Capernaum, which is kind of his home base away from home. uh, And a great crowd gathers around him. The text tells us so many uh, people there that they couldn't even eat. And in chapter 3, verse 21, it says this. It says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. You remember that? His own family. He's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. And now he's strolling back into Nazareth. Maybe his family thinks... He's finally coming back to his senses. He's coming home. Maybe he's failed and he's back to start the carpentry business again. But any illusions that they had were quickly shattered. We see in verse 1 that he has disciples with him. This wasn't a joyride into town. It was a mission and an opportunity for discipleship of Jesus' followers. Uh, Look at verse 2. It says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? For uh, us modern-day Christians, this seems a little odd, right? For Jesus just to stroll into town and kind of grabbed the mic there at the synagogue. But this wouldn't have been odd at all during Jesus' time. Uh, In Jewish synagogues, any adult male could speak in the gathering. And so Jesus does, and he does it in epic fashion. Uh, We don't know exactly what he preached during this time, but we know that the last time he did this in his hometown, uh, in Luke chapter 4, He preached from Isaiah 61. He got up there and proclaimed that Isaiah was speaking of him, Jesus. And the text tells us in Luke 4 that the people were literally filled with wrath. And they drove him out of town so that they could throw him down a cliff. (laughs) What a response, huh? Kind of what every young pastor dreams of. So... Jesus is back in that same synagogue, preaching again. 
the text tells us they're astonished. There was no getting around that this man had authority and wisdom and miraculous power. He preached biblically and graciously with simplicity and authenticity and power. He preached with clarity in a way that, yes, exposed the text, but also exposed their hearts. You can almost hear the thoughts in their minds. Really? Jesus? That guy? Preaching with authority and wisdom and power? That's impossible. See, they knew that Jesus wasn't a school rabbi. They knew that he hadn't even trained under a school rabbi. So they're astonished at what they're hearing. But it quickly moves past that from astonishment to insults, derision. Look at verse 3. They're astonished, but then in verse 3 it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So first off, they question his employment. It's not this the carpenter. They knew that Jesus was a builder. But in those days, builders didn't have much status or standing. They were considered lowly. So you can hear that. Isn't he a carpenter? What's he doing teaching in our synagogue? He doesn't have the status or the, the, the teaching or the learning to, to be in our synagogue. Isn't he a carpenter? Then, if that wasn't enough of an insult, they swing even lower. Look what they say next. It's not this the carpenter, the son of Mary. Ouch. So, Understand this. They're not saying this out of veneration for Mary. Around Christmas, we like to sing songs that celebrate the babe, the son of Mary, right? But in Jewish culture, men were always identified by their relationship to their fathers, not their mothers. So even if their father had passed away, which seems to be the case with Jesus here, he still should have been identified, not as the son of Mary, but as Joseph's son. So you see what they're doing here. They know the story of Jesus' birth, or at least they think they do. They believe that he was conceived out of wedlock, illegitimately. So they're insulting him and his mom here. Isn't that the lowly carpenter, the son of that woman. They're not naming streets after Jesus or erecting statues. This is all-out ridicule. Next, they point out that they know his family. Isn't he the carpenter, the son of Mary? And they point out that they know his family. We forget that during Jesus' public ministry, his family weren't believers. We see that after his resurrection, his brothers are with the small group of believers, 
And we know that James becomes a, a leader in the local church. But at this time, his mom was most likely the only one who believed in him. So remember, his dad's most likely dead at this point. That's what they're getting at here. We know his family. And even they don't buy it. Who does he think he is? Other people in other cities might be duped by him. But we're smarter than that. We know better. Can you hear the pride in them? It's this exact pride that wouldn't allow them to see who Jesus really was. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you know more than the rest of us. But I want to challenge you. Examine who Jesus really is. Not who the television says he is. Not who our culture says he is. But who he really is. The Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of history. I want to challenge you to truthfully and honestly investigate the claims of Jesus. Hear his message straightforwardly and clearly. Uh, each week, we have a, a little red book out there on the table. Um, it's called, Who is Jesus? And it just thoughtfully and straightforwardly walks through the, the, the history of who Jesus is, the claims of the Bible, seeing if those things match up. I encourage you to wrestle with that. That would be our gift to you. Feel free to grab it on the way out. So who is Jesus? That's the question that Mark wants us to get at over and over and over and over again. Who is Jesus? How you answer that question will change your life. It'll change you in the here and now, and it'll change you for eternity. So they ridicule and insult him. And then the text tells us that they took offense at him. They took offense at him. This word for offense, it's the word scandalizo. You can hear the word scandalize there. And that's exactly what was happening in this moment. They were scandalized by Jesus. They were embarrassed by him. They wanted nothing to do with him. They rejected him. Interestingly enough, this word scandalon in its noun form was also used of a building stone that was rejected. During this day, builders would select stones to be used in kind of constructing buildings, and some of them they would just toss aside that didn't meet the quality that they were looking for. Now, every guy who's built something from wood at Home Depot knows how this goes, right? <laughs> you go through the pile of two-by-fours. 90% of them are warped or knotted or cracked. Uh, sorry, Home Depot, it's a bad ad. Um, so what do you do? You dig through and you reject them. You throw them back in the pile. And this is what Scripture explicitly tells us about Jesus. Check this out. Psalm 118, verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, the stone that was rejected or cast aside became the most important stone in the house. 
Jesus quotes this psalm, Psalm 118. He quotes it in Matthew chapter 21, Mark 12, and Luke 20. And he says, that's me. That psalm is about me. Even more, Peter quotes that psalm about Jesus before the Jewish legal assembly in Acts chapter 4 and in 1 Peter 2. It says, that's Jesus. That psalm's talking about him. He's the one that was rejected but became the cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 20 and 21 tells us this. tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Jesus is the most important stone in the building, yet he's scandalized. He's rejected. But here's the thing. This wasn't a surprise. This was by design. It was prophecy that Jesus, the Messiah, would be rejected. Look at what Isaiah chapter 53 says. So over 700 years before Jesus was born, this was written about the Messiah, the Jewish king who would come to rescue his people. Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 5, says, For he, speaking of the Messiah, he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Do you see it? Rejection is a mark of the Messiah. Ironic, isn't it? The unbelief of the people in Nazareth actually points to the very truth that they deny. That Jesus is sent from God. He's the Messiah. Jesus was rejected and considered repulsive by his own people. But he was the cornerstone that every one of us need. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Why? Because he was the only cornerstone that could actually do it. So let me ask you this. Does Jesus scandalize you? Are you embarrassed by him? If so, I pray this morning that God would change your heart. I pray that he'd do a miracle that only he can do in bringing you out of death and into true and everlasting life. He's the most important stone in the history of the world. So, look at how Jesus responds to these insults. Verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown 
and among his relatives and in his own household. I won't say much here, but do you see that familiarity breeds contempt? They were so familiar with him that they simply wrote him off. Don't let that happen to you, friends. It's so easy to be around the church, to hear the gospel preached week in and week out, so much so that it just becomes familiar, dull, every day, and eventually not important. Don't give in to this. Yes, be around the church, hear the gospel, but never forget the goodness and the truth and the wonder and the beauty of Jesus. Don't let familiarity breed contempt. So, they ridicule. Jesus responds. And look at the result, verses 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about or he went about among the villages teaching. What chilling words. First off, he could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there. To be clear, the could here isn't because of a lack of power or ability on Jesus' part. This isn't a statement about Jesus' physical ability. Uh, We even see an exception to the statement that he did heal some sick people. Mark's point here is that for Jesus to do a mighty work there would have been morally and spiritually inconsistent. Why? Well, the kingdom of God had been rejected through unbelief. Kent Hughes, uh, author and pastor, says it this way. He says, Omnipotence is not omnipotence if it is bound by anything but its own will. Jesus was morally compelled not to show his power. Matthew makes this clear in Matthew 13, 58. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. He says unbelief freezes the exercise of God's power. I want us to remember this was the same guy, Jesus, who stilled the raging sea with a word and even just raised a little girl from the dead. And he could not do a mighty work there. Unbelief is a powerful thing. He's astonished at the depth of their callousness here. In the Bible, Jesus is astonished at both faith and unbelief. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus is astonished at the faith of a Roman soldier. Matthew 8, verse 10, it says, When Jesus heard this, about this Roman soldier's faith, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Same word from our text, can mean astonished. He marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Amazing God with your faith? The God who spoke creation into existence. Amazed at your faith. 
on the other end, can you imagine astonishing God with your unbelief? Friends, this is the sin that's behind every other sin. Why did Adam and Eve disobey in the garden? Because they didn't believe God. The sin of unbelief is the most serious sin imaginable. And this is why before we call out the world's sins, we must first address their unbelief. The sin of unbelief is the most serious sin imaginable. So, never ever call evil good or good evil. That's not what I'm saying. But share the gospel. Share Jesus Christ. Call for repentance and belief. That's the pattern that we see in Scripture. Hebrews 11, verse 6, tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please him, meaning God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church your whole life. It doesn't matter if you're basically a good person. It doesn't matter if you serve the poor and pursue justice. Hebrews couldn't be more clear. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You see why Jesus was astonished at their unbelief? These people in Nazareth had had so much interaction with him. He lived in their town for 30 years. 30 years. We think a cool, relevant band with smoke and lights or a new program is going to draw people to Jesus? Jesus himself, the incarnate Son of God who lived perfectly and spoke perfectly and did miracles, lived in their midst for 30 years. They rejected him. Hear me out. I point this out because I know that we do things here at Santa Cruz Baptist a little differently. I want to be clear that we don't believe that other ministry models are necessarily sinful. We don't ultimately put our hopes of conversion in good ministry models or in well-polished Sunday morning services. Conversion doesn't come through the right ministry model. There was no one who ministered ever in the history of the world better than Jesus. And they scandalized him. Conversion is an act of the Spirit. It's a work that only the Spirit can do. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand. Remember, he brought the disciples with him to Nazareth. He brought them to see all of this take place. He wanted them to understand this concept. Even on good days, people were going to reject them. 
just like they rejected Jesus. Conversion is an act of the Spirit. It wants us to understand that today, too. So with that in mind, let's see what happens next. Point two, depending on God for mission. Verses 7 through 13. So after allowing the disciples to see what happened in Nazareth, Jesus sends his disciples out on mission. And again, he wants them and us this morning to understand some key truths. So he sends them out on a very real but a trial mission. Look with me at verse 7. It says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. First and foremost, I want us to notice this word, send. It's the word apostello. You can hear the word apostle there. Sent one. And Jesus gives them his authority. In Jewish law, the one who was sent always carried the authority of the one who sent them. In other words, it was just as if the sender himself had come. What you did to the sent one, you did to the sender. These these men uh, would have been recognized as representatives of Jesus to the fullest extent. This was certainly true of the capital A apostles, but do you realize that this is true of all who bear the name of Christ? Whether you like it or not, if you claim to be a Christian, you speak on Jesus' behalf. This is a tremendous right and a responsibility. You speak for King Jesus as his representative. I won't go all the way down this rabbit hole, but this is another reason why church membership is so vital and so important. It's a means by which the church says, yes, that one, that one is authorized to speak for King Jesus as a sent one. That's the authority that Jesus was giving when he gave the keys of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 16 to Peter, and to the church, and to us. We don't get to to enact that authority on ourselves. That's a church decision. Who gets to speak for King Jesus? Sidebar over. So, as you go on mission, you carry the authority of Christ, and you represent him. But you're not meant to go alone. Do you see that he doesn't send them out one by one? In our pragmatic day and age of ministry, so many churches just want to do what's most effective or whatever works. Not Jesus. They could have covered twice the amount of ground if they had gone out alone, right? But Jesus wanted something else. He wanted them to have partnership. Further, Jesus wasn't a man of pragmatism, but a man of the book. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, says this. This is Jewish law. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. 
So something could only be established as true with a minimum of two witnesses. What one said, the other could verify. In addition, partnership meant mutual encouragement and prayer for one another. This is exactly the model that John the Baptist in the early church employed. So, Jesus sends them out with his authority and not as Lone Ranger Christians. Next, look at verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. What's he teaching them here? Well, a couple of things. First, it's important to know that in rabbinic law, when men entered the temple courts, they were supposed to take off their shoes, their money bag, put away their staff. All ordinary things were to be set aside because the temple was holy. It's possible that Jesus wanted his disciples to know this truth on mission. The humble homes that they'd be entering were every bit as sacred as the temple courts. So I ask us, do you understand mission in this way? Do you understand that your holiness is every bit as important in your neighbor's house as it is here on Sunday morning in God's house? Also, do you believe that your time barbecuing with your friends is a sacred thing? Again, you represent Jesus to people, whether in your backyard or here on Sunday morning. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand this. But there's more. Most importantly, Jesus was teaching his disciples about dependence. Instead of relying on their own strength and what they could bring with them on their mission, Jesus wanted them to know that the mission can only be accomplished through relying on God. I know I've already picked on this a little bit, but I can't help but see this here. Do we really rely on God for mission? Or do we rely on programs and party tricks? Now, I'm not saying that all church programs are bad. They're certainly not. In the same way that Jesus would have never said that bread, money bags, or tunics were bad. In fact, sometime later, when kind of looking back on this moment in Mark, Jesus says this. Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 36. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. You see that? The principle here isn't that these things are bad. The, the principle is, do you trust God? If you roll into town with a U-Haul full of stuff, you tend to rely on that stuff. Jesus didn't want that. He wanted them to rely on God and the power of his spirit. Again, we don't see other churches' ministry models as sinful. We simply believe in prioritizing 
the humble yet holy tools that God has given us. When we rely on programs to see conversion, we tend to lose our reliance upon God, which usually means prayerlessness. So, where is your trust in mission? Where is your trust in mission? Jesus sends them out as his authoritative representatives, sends them in partnership, and he sends them relying on him. Look at what else he says. Verse 10. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. In other words, be content. Jesus knew that while they were on mission, they'd probably encounter a number of generous poor people who would invite them in to stay. His point was, if you're invited to stay, then a couple days later, the mansion down the street opens up. Don't leave. Be content and don't offend the first house you enter. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Gladly receive the hospitality that's offered to you. These visits weren't social visits where one night they were in one house and the next night in another house and so on and so forth. They were to be focused on the message that they were delivering and intentionally present in whatever house they were in. And here's a big one, verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. What in the world could Jesus be teaching them here? Well, it's important to know that when Jews traveled, specifically into Gentile regions, when they left, they would shake the dust off their feet at the border so that, in their minds, they would, would, wouldn't bring contamination from the pagan world into Israel. Shake it off to say, we can't bring contamination in here. It was a symbol of God's judgment on pagans. They were essentially saying, this country that we just left is outside of the sphere of God's holy people. Now, these cities that Jesus sent his disciples into were not Gentile or pagan cities. They were Jewish cities. So do you see what he's telling them to do? He's saying, if they don't receive the message, if they reject you, like you saw Nazareth reject me, enact this parable to let them know that they too are in danger of God's judgment, that they're no better off than pagans. When they left a city that had rejected Christ, they were to let them know the danger that they were in. This wasn't, I'm okay, you're okay. It wasn't, well, I've got my truth and you've got yours, we're all good. There was no question about the message that they were sending when they did this kind of thing. In the kingdom of God, there's no neutral ground. You can either receive King Jesus in faith or reject him in unbelief. And the consequences of that decision are very serious and very real. Friends, 
This was true for each of these cities that they went into. And it's no less true for us today. Every single one of us has this choice before us. Will we receive the good news of Jesus Christ? Will we repent and believe? Or will we reject him? The gospel is a double-edged sword. Now, on one side, eternal life. And on the other, everlasting judgment. That's why Jesus sent his disciples and us with a sense of urgency. This wasn't a game. It isn't a game. The question is, how will we respond? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we plead with you. Turn from sin and trust in Christ. Repent and believe. It's the most important decision you could ever make. Life and death hang in the balance. In closing, I want us to take to heart Jesus' words from John chapter 15. He says this. He says, A servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you're a Christian, you are an authorized representative of King Jesus. You're called and commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations. Don't lose heart in that. You will experience rejection, just like Jesus in Nazareth. Don't give up. Trust in God for everything. Be content and be clear in the message that you carry. Let's pray.